Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. My guest today, the filmmaker and screenwriter Christopher Nolan, is a titan of cinema. Known for spectacle shot on film, not digital, layered storytelling and a propensity to play with time, he's become one of the greatest auteurs of our day. And there are a few times when the label epic can be deployed with the full meaning of the word behind it, but there aren't many other ways to describe his new film, Oppenheimer. It tells the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, played by Killian Murphy, widely heralded as the father of the atomic bomb. Over three hours, audiences watch how the giddy excitement of the Manhattan Project's scientific progress turns into unthinkable destruction, as the nuclear weapons are deployed for the first and still only time during the Second World War. Yet it's not just the staggering subject matter that is a bold undertaking. The film is entirely devoid of CGI. The many breathtaking explosion scenes are all shot using practical effects. Oppenheimer also uses a particular film, mostly IMAX 65mm to be precise. Three hours worth stretches out to 11 miles of the analogue format. Fact fans. Now, before we get into my conversation with Christopher Nolan, let's hear a taste of the trailer. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. They have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Congratulations on an absolutely wonderful film. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, Christopher, first, there is obviously such an antic energy at the centre of it, Mm. um, both in his character and what he achieves, such an unstoppable force and momentum. How quickly was that... A central part of your sort of filmmaking rubric, if it was? I think right from reading the specifics of his story. I mean, I knew mm-hmm. about the key dramatic events of this incredible story, the Trinity test, the way in which it changed the world forever. But coming to the book 
which I've adapted, American Prometheus uh-huh. by Kyber and Montecchio. And reading that, there was this incredible sense of suspense and momentum to so many different aspects of his life. There were so many things that happened to him as a young man that decades later come back to haunt him, catch up with him in, in that most sort of cinematic way. And so for me, I've never really wanted to tell a story of somebody's life in, in some kind of traditional sense. I really wanted to just view the events of his life as an experience mm-hmm. to be shared with the audience so that they could, I think, maybe come to some kind of understanding of him rather than judging him. Yeah. And in that way, the momentum of it, I think, is very important because there are a lot of decisions being made in a very pressured environment, you know, whether or not to push the button before the Trinity test, even knowing that there was this very small possibility that might destroy the entire world. (laughs) But so you have to feel that sense of momentum and pressure that's just pushing, pushing, pushing in a particular direction because that's what they're caught up in. And I I want to be caught up in that as well so as not to be dispassionate and looking Mm -hmm. at, hang on, why do they do this? Why do they do that? You want to really understand the the momentum of the moment they're in. And it's a very human drama, obviously, in the in the wider scheme of things, but in his and his circle of friends, lovers and girlfriends and, 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 and all of that. Um, and I suppose it's an intimate portrait in a way of a person that's in often unwilling competitor in this, in this arms race. Mm. You feel very much like you're on his... I felt very much like the, the story and your story, your telling of the story was on his side in that. Mm. Did you feel that he was a kind of unwilling competitor in this race? I don't. I think unwilling Sometimes. is up for debate. I think it's. I think it's ambiguous. I think that the man had tremendous ambition, mm. and he had a tremendous sense of his own theatricality, his own drama, and how to use that. Uh, and I think those things come into play in his decision making in ways that are a little frightening when, <laughs> when thought of in the context of, of you know, the global well-being, if you want to say, and, and the ways in which it changed the world. But that's what's wonderfully involving to me about his story. Reading the book, you know, I get to the moment where I realize that Los Alamos, this place that, that lives in infamy, really, I mean, it's today still one of the key sites of uh, the mm-hmm. development of present-day nuclear weapons. That was a place he liked to go camping with his brother. And, you know, you first hear the name and you're like, it's that personal. And he says, you know, if I could find a way to combine physics in New Mexico, my life would be complete. And you think, okay, this, this desire, this idiosyncratic, you know, simple human feeling about things is going to change the world forever. Yeah. Yes, it does feel like that. It feels like uh, if it happened in a British context, the new forest would never be the same or something like this, right? <laughs> exactly. yeah. Beware. Exactly. Yeah. Cheltenham. Where you, spend, you know, where you spend your summer holidays, <laughs> exactly. And in that human sense, there's a, there's a sort of... It's quite a chamber piece. A lot of it happens in rooms and cocktail parties, in lecture theatres and in classrooms and things, mm-hmm. as much as that broad new town, which kind of Los Alamos becomes, I suppose. Yeah. What was... And obviously set against the, the vastness of the ambition of the project... And and what it laid waste to, I suppose, you're quite sparing with the pyrotechnics in mm. this movie, and I wondered again, a bit like my first question, how early that was written into your plan for the film. To it's not a crash bang wallop situation that we find ourselves in, despite the largeness yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, 
scale and and you know we talked about momentum but but mm. scale in, in cinema is a, it's a hard thing to pin down it's not just about the literal scale of the set you build or the, the world you're trying to create it's often about the humanity involved mm. and, and we knew we needed and we got you know the, the huge vistas of new mexico in contrast with the people that you know the the thunderous nature of the weather there and everything that prefigures and so forth mm. But ultimately, a lot of the scale comes from the group of people who are assembled, the disparate points of view that come together, uh, the community of scientists, the military community, how they interact. And, you know, very early on, it was apparent to me that, that having got Killian to play the lead, I now needed to people this world with a lot of extraordinary actors. Mm. You know, and we have Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, many others, but also a lot of fresher faces, young actors coming together to portray, you know, it's Richard Feynman or Robert Serber, you know, these guys coming mm-hmm. together to get across a, a couple of interesting facts about this story. The average age of everyone in Los Alamos is about 28. The number of Americans involved in making the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki is about 600,000. So this was an, the ultimate sort of group effort. You know, the team at Los Alamos, which was 1,000 strong, Often I was having to wrangle this, and we wanted to feel the scale of that problem. So I didn't write any composite characters, which is what people yeah. often do when they're adapting real life. I just wrote a lot of names and faces that, that were going to come in and do their thing. And what I wanted to trust is that if we could cast them right and give everybody their own sort of unique energy, the audience would remember what they needed to remember. They wouldn't necessarily know people's names, but they'd know that, okay... That guy, is, yeah. Yeah. that guy is that bit of the story. That guy is that bit of the story. But you wanted to get this feeling of tremendous scale to the personalities involved. Well, those personalities ring true, and it's a, it must be a. That is, I guess, yeah. Those are the people that populate the film. It is their hopes and fears and their idiosyncrasies, as you say, coming from the top down. I suppose those frailties as well. How, and as you mentioned, this comes from American Prometheus, the mm-hmm. Kai Bird and Martin, Martin Sherwin book. How easy, what, what sort of feat was it to write dialogue from a history book? Because there can't be much in that book. <laughs> well, you, you, know, you, you, you have to breathe life into those historical characters. Well, dialogue's a very sp- <clears throat> specific and interesting facet mm. of, of this experience for me as, as a filmmaker because there are things in the book, a lot of it, as you say, is you know, reported. Mm. Uh, but there are the occasional bits of dialogue that really stick with you from the book. And then the book points you to the transcripts. So when it came to the security right. hearings in 1954, I'm reading a thousand pages of transcripts, which, whilst they won't give you tone of voice, or anything, it's kind of interesting. You have to interpret it kind of if you were adapting a Shakespeare play or something. You have to <laughs> sort of interpret, you know, well, what, yeah. how do you say the line, as it were? But the lines themselves, oh, my God. I mean, the, the drama of these transcripts is just so far beyond anything that I would ever dare to put on paper. It's amazing uh, source material. Amazing source that. material. And yeah. so my job was to pick and choose, to edit, to take, I won't call them highlights because it's not that kind of story, but the, the important parts mm. of these thousand pages. And really, I used... The transcript, and so a lot of what the characters say in the film is verbatim. You tidy it up mm. so that it fits the sort of movie vernacular because we're not making a documentary, we're interpreting no, it and making yeah. a dramatic feature. But um, I really tried to be guided by the transcripts because they were simply 
they were just so dramatic. I mean, there are things that Oppenheimer says, some which I don't want to say because they're spoilers, or things that when you know, Kitty yeah. testifies, or those things are taken, you know, right from the transcript. Those must be I mean, reading that stuff as well. I mean, and knowing, seeing it on the screen. Well, actually, there's a thing that Niels Bohr says that the, in mm. one of the, in the sort of Act One of the film, the Danish scientist. Doesn't he say, I'm going, to, I'm going to have to paraphrase this, but he says something like, it's like sheet music. Hmm. It doesn't matter if you can read every individual note. It's about being able to hear the music. Hmm. And that feels like he's talking about quantum physics or quantum mechanics or hmm. mathematics. And I wondered if that's a sort of bit of a note to self to a movie director, Christopher, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. You've got Not so much at your disposal. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, how do you... I mean, that? it is, but it's also a sort of... Well, it's a truth that the audience needs to hear in this kind of story, which is that mm. these scientists, whatever their individual brilliance and, and their facility in things that, that we can never understand or relate to, what they do involves intuition and mm. visualization. Mm. Uh, working with Kip Thorne, who helped me with this as well, but, but was actually the ideas man behind uh, Interstellar, yeah. Kip's a Nobel Prize winning physicist of, of, of great standing and, mm. and he's very good at explaining things to me. We had all kinds of amazing conversations over the course of the three films we've, we've worked on together. But one of the key things that I learned from him in Interstellar is that the process of an artist or a writer, a filmmaker, is not so different from that of a physicist. Because yes, they're dealing with algebra, you know, everything, but intuition, yeah. feeling something, feeling an understanding of something, is massively important to them. And so that's really what that's aimed at. And that, I think, for me, I grab onto that. It's like, that's relatable. I can't understand quantum physics, but I can understand that. And I can understand being threatened by a new way of looking at the world that looks at the world completely differently and says, all the old rules are wrong. These are new rules. Yeah. It's like magic. You know, these are these are wizards. You know, he's meeting Niels Bohr and it's like Luke Skywalker meeting Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> yeah. or something. It's sort of like, let's take this thing that you can do and let's channel it into something productive, which <laughs> ultimately becomes incredibly destructive. Yeah. Uh, but that's the paradox of the Manhattan Project and the bomb itself. It's, it's a, a massive achievement of creative thinking and creativity that leads to utter destruction. When I was letting the film settle in on the way home after the screening, I was, think, I was making notes, as you do, and thinking about the difference between, in Oppenheimer's mind and in the world we now live in, the difference between theory and reality, the difference mm. between theory and practice, I suppose. He loves the idea of the theory of an electron rubbing on another electron and doing these things, but the reality is so different. That bears itself out in his human relationship, some of them, mm. and in how the Manhattan Project was, was to turn out. Mm. Did anything like that appear to you, that these themes were running two speed in his private life, as you might say, and his top secret work for the US military. Yeah, definitely. I mean, really, to me, it all goes back to the earliest images in the film where you're, you're seeing him sort of almost haunted by... Uh, we almost present them as visions mm. of this world within a world, of this yeah. vibration of quantum energy. And we try and follow that thread with images, but also with sound. You know, To me, that represents who he is as a young man. He was a late bloomer. And he was a neurotic individual. He was very complicated, incredibly brilliant. But but where do you put that energy? So there's a kind of vibration in his soul almost that it's instability. And instability is energy and, and power. And, and ultimately, 
in the quantum realm that leads him to the ultimate destructive force. But it's there in him as well as a man, as, as somebody trying to harness that power so that it can uh, be useful to him. But we always feel, we always wanted to feel in the film, this threat of instability, this, this mm. just like the world's going to come apart at any second. And so I, I think for me, the, the things are linked very directly. Yeah, we see all those shaking and shattering of electrons and atoms, and yeah. they might be poetry in his head as a young man. They might be, he might be looking into his own future almost and seeing yeah. what he might end up doing and what he'd gain notoriety for doing. Just one last one for you, Christopher, is, yeah, well, it's obviously a film with a deep conscience mm. and wrestles with the conscience of its main protagonist. Is it, is it a rehabilitation or is that just how it has ended up in the, in the final telling of it? Was it intended as such? I you know, I don't want to give away I don't want to give away the ending. No. It's no, it's not intended as such. It's it, what what we're aiming for in the storytelling is engagement. Yeah. With him and seeing all these events through his eyes. And to me, that leads to understanding, not judgment. If you're mm-hmm. judging a character, you're sort of separating from them emotionally. Mm-hmm. I want to be engaged with them emotionally. But then as you leave the cinema, as the end credits roll, uh, if we've done our jobs right, you're left with an unsettling sense of, yeah. hang on a second, <laughs> you know, well, wait a second, what did we just see? What, you know, what was all this? Uh, and I think that's the nature of the subject matter, and I'm trusting. As I have with some of my earlier films, I think this is very much the case with Dunkirk. You know, we sort of trusted the freighted emotion of that story, so we created a telling of it that was very objective and neutral and kind of not mm. filled with backstories and romanticism. It was really just quite mechanical because the story itself is so yeah. emotional. In the case of Oppenheim, the story is so dark. The way in which it changes the world is so terrifying that you can afford to actually lean into the positive aspects of, of everything, the, the entertainment of it, the glamour of it. You know, he was a very, glamour, was a very glamorous, charismatic yeah. figure who became a celebrity and everything. And you can, you can enjoy that, you know. I mean, I, I always <laughs> come back to that wonderful moment in Ridley Scott's Gladiator where... Russell Crowe's character, you know, dispatches this victim very quickly and says, are you not entertained? Yeah. And at that moment, you have this sort of appalling feeling of, well, I am a bit, yeah, <laughs> you know, but I shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. that hangs over this film completely. And I think that's appropriate because I think that's true to the reality of it. The, the questions it raises, there's just no way around them. There's no way to not think about them, you know, through this story. And so, uh, you know, I feel that we can... We can afford to understand Oppenheimer, I'll put it that way. Yeah, spectacle, box office, right? That's what it is, <laughs> sadly. Christopher Nolan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Christopher Nolan there. And to round out this week's show, I sat down with the film critic and Monocle on Culture regular, Leila Latif, to find out her thoughts on this explosive cinematic release. Leila, thank you for joining us to discuss... I was going to say all things Oppenheimer. I don't know how we have we have the scope mm-hmm. all the time. So, so let's dive in and talk about the the nature of the film. It obviously is a film that covers the one of the greatest issues of the twentieth century, and yet it has some of the habits of a chamber piece. We're in quite small rooms some of the time. We're up close and personal around blackboards and uh, at cocktail parties and on campus. Does that work for you, the kind of the fusion of this huge idea and the sometimes small rooms in which these ideas were hatched, I wonder? 
Yeah, I think it did really work for me because it's sort of a film about the like the power of ideas, the power of theory. So kind of having that like claustrophobic feeling that you were kind of within this man's mind um, and that sort of 12 angry men element that comes in when he's kind of facing accusations of being um, a traitor during the kind of height of McCarthyism, like that kind of very intense feeling, I think, really worked in its favour. And, and the cast as well are, I, mean, I thought the cast were sort of phenomenal and used in unusual ways. Um, I asked Christopher Nolan about kind of how you how you put dialogue into the, you know, when it, when it comes from a history book, there are mm-hmm. transcripts and stuff, but how you put dialogue um, into these sort of historical um, characters and things. What who, who stood out for you? I mean, let's take Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer. He does a good line in intense sort of (laughs) intensity I suppose right yeah he's got that very kind of sharp features and very bright Mm. eyes so much of the film is actually just kind of close-ups holding on just his um his face it kind of really feels that no one else could could pull this off in quite the same way and kind of not just pull off like the convincing genius of Oppenheimer but like the kind of deep wells of like conflict within him which are often done kind of dialogue free yeah but I mean, the cast is ridiculous. It's <laughs> phenomenal, is it? It's deep and crisp and even. It's like Christmas. It's Snow. fantastic. But like so much of my notes coming out of it were like, <laughs> what do you mean Josh from Drake and Josh is in this? Why is Jack Quaid here? Why is the mayor from Buffy here? As well as like the giant movie stars of like Emily Blunt and you're like Matt yeah. David. Like the ensemble is staggering, but often kind of like almost... Well, it doesn't take you out of it, but it's more like really fun. It's just it like is. oh, and like an, oh, and Josh Saft is here. Like, yeah, yeah. They seem to have quite a lot of big marquee names. Seems to just be sort of wandering around in the background. Yeah. Like I think Emily Blunt's character, the, the wife, appears blurred at the beginning. I think sort of sitting in the background of this tribunal. Mm-hmm. It's not a tribunal. Well, it is, it is a tribunal because it is not a court, but it is a. I guess it's a an interior hearing about his his security status and, yeah. and how they want to take it away from him. I particularly enjoyed Matt Damon. I thought he was having quite a lot of fun with with General Groves. What about him and his sort of... Uh, he, that was sort of... I mean, he's quite... Uh, he's almost a, a figure of a light relief despite being in charge of the whole Manhattan Project in Los Alamos, I suppose. Yeah, I kind of like slightly wince at the idea of like needing to insert some like comic relief into this. And, you know, as I'm a fan of Nolan, but he's not known for his jokes. That, I think, worked because it was more an old-fashioned kind of type of humour. It felt Mm. a bit kind of Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, like just very like fast-witted rather than like somebody's going to be just like silly or a buffoon in the midst of this like incredibly heavy subject matter. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it did feel like that. And the bomb itself, as we've said in the preface, there's no CGI in this. It is necessarily not lo-fi in any way whatsoever, but it is manual and it is very sort of man-made, I suppose, this, this the structure from which we, we first see the, the sort of bomb detonated and stuff. For me, that stood greatly in the film's favour, that its pyrotechnics were not homemade, but they were believably 1940s-ish, I suppose, and yeah. kind of built in, built in a ranch in New Mexico. I mean, walking into that screening, I was expecting a, a more disaster... I think, I mean, to what extent do you think Christopher Nolan is leaving that in the mind of the of the viewer? 
the sort of notion to, of the, the, the repercussions through history and all the rest of it. To a great extent. And I think that's why the film is as good as it is. I mean, there would be one thing if we kind of saw the devastation being wrecked in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. But it's kind of all the worst because you kind of see the blasé nature within these things, the way things are being discussed. You see the test bomb, mm. which means that you have to imagine the human devastation of that actually being like wrecked upon a people. So I think rather than it doesn't ever feel emotionally manipulative, as mm. I think kind of something like this could quite easily be about kind of one of the great horrific things that happened in the 20th century. And instead it kind of, because it lets you fill in the gaps, it feels very kind of authentic and it's not pulling at the heartstrings. So at the several points where I was weeping, like it felt like it was coming from quite a deep-rooted place. Yeah, it felt, yeah, it felt <laughs> like it was subtle and sparing in its sort of trappings of bombishness, I suppose, somehow, right? <laughs> it, did the, it did the thing, but it didn't go any further. We didn't go to Japan and that was kind of yeah. a, a good thing. I mean... It's funny that we're talking about like restraint and showing not telling in a film that is more than three hours long. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Act one skips along beautifully. And there's some I really loved. I thought that was very light on its feet and wonderful. Mm -hmm. And maybe act three is 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 great. I guess it's one of those things when, an, when, a, when a movie is three hours long, something happens in the middle of it. What does or maybe doesn't happen in the middle of this film? Where, where did it where did it need to? pick up its skirts and run a bit, I wonder. I don't think at any real moment. Like, right. the pace of it is really quite frantic. Like, the editing is very, very choppy. You kind of tear through this time. And even with that, like, giant, you know, run time, I, I, it didn't feel like there was anything that was too baggy at any point. I mean, maybe for some people who perhaps are not that interested in the sort of physics of it all but like, yeah. I found myself kind of really feeling that I'd gotten a grasp on things and I was very very interested in kind of seeing the way that these different kind of forms of science and ideas would come together and the sort of bizarre circumstances where just because of this man's sort of affection for this particular New Mexican landscape mm. that like the one of the most important things that's ever happened in the history of mankind happens in this very bizarre little fake town in the middle of the New Mexican Plains. Like, it's so strange that this actually happened in any form that, yeah, even with that kind of long middle act, I was enthralled. Yeah, there's something that echoes the sort of crazy momentum and ineluctable kind of pace of the of the bomb and the and the and the construction of it and the kind of inevitability of it once they've started where it'll get to I suppose that happens in the film there is there is this kind of antic kind of pace pace to the whole thing and there's a lot of stuff that happens in this quasi courtroom or this dark drab little office where he has the, where the tribunal happens there's a lot of things that could be longers I suppose that don't feel like they are I suppose yeah yeah skips yeah. along I was yeah very pleasantly surprised and I don't know what I was expecting. It's not what I saw, mm. but it just seems so remarkable to me that the man that made Dunkirk, which is fundamentally about kind of people coming together in this like loving way and like the heroism of kind of the, the underdog, made this. <laughs> like This yeah. is one of the like bleakest, most nihilistic views of mankind that I that I, I've seen in a while. Like, but and and. I mean that as a compliment, mm. but like 
that's the thing that I think kept drawing me in because it's like no matter how small the space is, how small the community he forms, whether it's at Cambridge or at Berkeley or in New Mexico or kind of within these like small committees, everyone's fractured. Everybody's got kind of completely different ambitions and is kind of ready to betray their closest (laughs) comrades at like a moment's notice. So I think like even when kind of arguably less is happening, it's still fascinating. Yeah. um, Build a bomb in a nest of vipers. See how you get on. What could go wrong? So that was Oppenheimer, which we loved. Three hours of three hours of 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 largesse. Um, Your further reading, Leila, is released. I understand on the same day actually as Oppenheimer, um, and it's called "They Cloned Tyrone." Yes, I mean, can you talk us briefly through cloning Tyrone, if you would? Yeah, it does feel like the kind of um, the double bill everyone's talking about is Oppenheimer Barbie or Barbie Oppenheimer. But I suggest that a third film comes into the mix that evening, which is um, yeah, Netflix's They Clone Tyrone, which is a kind of black exploitation sci-fi from a new director called Joel Taylor. Mm. It's so friggin cool that it's 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 really irresistible and like much like Oppenheimer it's all about what if scientific technology gets into people that cannot be trusted and you know no spoiler to say clones are involved and yeah it's 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 John Baega and Jamie Foxx and Tiana Paris and you know they're playing a um a drug dealer a pimp and a sex worker kind of the black exploitation er- stereotypes yeah you've got your holy trinity there <laughs> yeah it just it, it feels like a punchline or set up for a punchline but yeah just a really really funny mystery um sci-fi movie where there's kind of a huge amount of conspiracies at foot but I think much like Oppenheimer, it also doesn't really take its foot off the gas yeah. very quickly. Like there is a twist every 20 minutes. There are super exciting things that happen constantly. You kind of get thrown, um, you know, everything gets reframed as you sort of slowly find out different things that are going on. And then John Boyega just <laughs> rarely misses. And to me, this is kind of going, it's almost like a tribute to his first role in Attack the Block where he's like, in theory, a deeply unsympathetic stereotype, and then you fall in love with him. It's wonderful, deep work. They cloned Tyrone, black exploitation, sci-fi. That will do it for many a listener. Yeah. Leila Latif, thank you very much indeed. That's a pleasure. Leila Latif there. My thanks to her and, of course, to Christopher Nolan. And Oppenheimer is out in cinemas now. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.